You are listening to Radio Maria and it is time now for our evening programme of Credo. I am delighted to introduce Roy Peachy, who is going to speak to us this evening about Tolkien and the liturgy. Roy, hello. Hello there. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And I had a discussion with my husband about, I was saying Tolkien and he was saying it's Tolkien. Which, which, how should we pr- pronounce Tol- Tolkien's name? I think it's Tolkien. Tolkien. So I was right. I'm, I'm pleased to, to be corrected <laughs> by anybody more knowledgeable out there. OK, thank you. Um, Roy, I know you're going to speak to us about that. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself before you do that? And we're, we're all ears. I'm, we're listening. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm Roy and I'm, uh, I'm an author. So I've written um, seven books, I think. Um, and I'm also a teacher and a home educator. But I suppose the reason I'm here talking about Tolkien this evening is because I'm also a student. So um, at a ripe old age, I won't say what my age is. I'm doing a PhD at uh, University of Nottingham on liturgy and literature in the modern age, so the 20th and 21st centuries. And so as part of that, I'm looking at Tolkien and writing a couple of chapters about him and his relationship with the liturgy and the relationship of the liturgy to his his great works. So I thought what might be good was to start off by just saying a little bit about the background of Tolkien himself. I'm sure a lot of the the listeners know this already, but it won't do any harm just to go over the, the basics. Tolkien was a devout Christian, he was a devout Catholic, and that faith that he had it was rooted in his particular personal circumstances. So he was born in South Africa. Tragically, his father died just before he was coming back to the UK when Tolkien was very, very young. And his, his mother, in the years after that, turned to the Catholic faith and she became a Catholic herself. Um, and that didn't necessarily go down too well with her family. And and then she died young as well. So Tolkien wrote some really moving letters in which he, he talked about his mother. In one of them, he said, she was a gifted lady of great beauty and wit, greatly stricken by God with grief and suffering, who died in youth at 34 of a disease hastened by persecution of her faith. And in another one, he said, I witnessed half comprehending the heroic sufferings and early death and extreme poverty of my mother who brought me into the church and received the astonishing charity of Francis Morgan. And Francis Morgan, Father Francis Morgan, priest of the oratory in Birmingham, became the guardian of Tolkien and his brother Hilary on the death of their mother at a young age. So he was brought up by a mother who had suffered for the faith, who was a convert. He was then, uh, his his guardian was then a a priest, an oratorian. And so he had this sort of very embedded Christian faith from an an early age. And in particular, he developed this sacramental faith. He, He really loved the Blessed Sacrament. In another letter, he said, I fell in love with the Blessed Sacrament from the beginning. And by the mercy of God, never have fallen out again. Not for me, the hound of heaven, but the never ceasing silent appeal of tabernacle and sense of starving hunger. 
And so, of course, along with that, there was a very great devotion to the mass. Again, it was just part of his his life. So in, a, in another letter, he says, Hillary, his brother, and I were supposed to and usually did serve mass before getting on our bikes to go to school. So from a very young age, he was serving mass on a regular basis. And throughout his life, on, on various occasions, he mentions in his letters, continuing to, to serve mass. And this became absolutely central one or two occasions in his life where he's he he wavered a little but he always came back and at one point he said the only cure for sagging of fainting faith is communion though always itself perfect and complete and inviolate the blessed sacrament does not operate completely and once for all in any of us like the act of faith it must be continuous and grow by exercise frequency is of the highest effect seven times a week is more nourishing than seven times at intervals. So he has this love of the mass, often a, a daily communicant. And so he really internalized it. And I think this is where it becomes important when we're thinking about his fiction. This wasn't an occasional thing for him. This was something that was deeply internalized in his life. And we can see that in a, a really great letter that he wrote to Christopher Tolkien, during the Second World War, Christopher, one of his sons, and he's giving him advice, fatherly advice. And he said, if you don't do so already, make a habit of the praises. I use them much in Latin, the Gloria Patri, the Gloria in Excelsis, the Laudate Dominum, the Laudate Pueri Dominum, of which I'm especially fond, one of the Sunday Psalms and the Magnificat, also the Litany of Loretto with the prayer Subtum Praesidium, if you have these by heart, you never need words of joy. It is also, he said, a good and admirable thing to know by heart the canon of the mass. For you can say this in your heart if ever hard circumstance keeps you from hearing mass. So here he is, not simply attending mass daily, but he's memorizing it. He's learning the canon of the mass by heart. And so it would be a surprise if it didn't then make its way, if the liturgy didn't then make its way into his fiction in some form or another, given that background. And I think it did make its way into his fiction, though not always in the ways we might expect. So his daughter Priscilla later wrote this really intriguing little comment about her father, about J.R.R. Tolkien. She said, my father loved the monastic tradition of Gregorian plain chant and was much concerned with the giving up of Latin in church services, since it had been for so many centuries the universal language of Western Christianity. I remember when the English performer and composer Donald Swan first met my father in my house in the 1960s in order to perform for him his song cycle, The Road Goes Ever On. When it came to the Elvish poem, the Marie, Galadriel's Lament and Farewell, my father demonstrated how he wished this to be sung in the mode of plain chant. Now, this link between Galadriel's song and Gregorian chant may not be at all obvious from the Lord of the Rings, but Tolkien himself clearly saw this elven song in a liturgical light. Or, to be more accurate, he heard it with a liturgical rhythm. And I think if we consider the, the language of the, elves, the elves a little more, 
we can perhaps see how this liturgical influence worked. So in a, one of the appendices to the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien explains that High Elven or Quenya was an ancient tongue of Eldamar beyond the sea, the first to be recorded in writing. It was no longer a birth tongue, but it had become, as it were, an Elven Latin, still used for ceremony and for high matters of law and song by the High Elves who had returned in exile to Middle-earth at the end of the First Age. So there's a link between Quenya, the language of the Elves, and Latin. It's still used for ceremony. And he made this implicit link explicit in another book, this link between Quenya and liturgical Latin, uh, the Notion Club Papers, which is one of his early works that was published after his death by Christopher Tolkien. And in the Notion Club Papers, there's a character called Loudham who explains to the rest of the club that Avalonian, which was an earlier name for Quenya, is to me beautiful in its simple and euphonious style. And it seems to me more august, more ancient and, well, sacred and liturgical. I used to call it the Elven Latin. The echoes of it carry one far away, very far away, away from Middle Earth altogether, I expect. So what we have here, really rather surprisingly, is a liturgical language, but a liturgical language that pre-exists the Christian liturgy. And perhaps that's a really useful way of thinking about the liturgy in Tolkien's work. Most of his fiction was set in a pre-Christian world in the ancient past. And so what we get is in some ways an anticipation of the liturgy in his work. Or to look at it another way, we have an echo of the liturgy that doesn't just roll forward in time, it rolls backwards in time and has an impact on the pre-Christian world of the Lord of the Rings and so on. Now, it may be that some people are a little sceptical about this and thinking, well, okay, if the liturgy is really so important, why is it not more explicit in his fiction? And I think the answer to that, or the first answer to that, is that sometimes it was, but we're perhaps looking in the wrong places. So Tolkien also wrote some great short stories. And in one of them, Father, Farmer Giles of Ham, there is a liturgical setting, a really explicit liturgical setting. So on the Feast of St. Michael, Farmer, Farmer Giles was summoned to see the king. And the dragon's tail was, and I quote, served up at the king's Christmas feast. And the knight chosen for the dragon hunt was supposed to set out upon St. Nicholas's day and come home with a dragon's tail not later than the eve of the Christmas feast. A tournament was then organised for St. John's day and Farmer Giles's armour was prepared all of the rest day, all the rest, all the rest of the day and all the next day, which was Twelfth Night and the eve of the Epiphany. And then the dragon himself swore that he would return with all his wealth on the feast of St. Hilarius and St. Felix. However, the dragon didn't return, and so Farmer Giles was forced to go after him, stumbling across him on the feast of Candlemas. And then after all of these activities, all of these references to liturgical time, Farmer Giles attempts to restore some sort of liturgical order when the dragons caused chaos by reminding the dragon quote, about what you said last epiphany. So what we've got here is a really clear geographical and temporal setting to the story. It takes place in the countryside around Oxenford, 
between the liturgical seasons of Michaelmas and Candlemas. And so it is, in a sense, it's a representation of the liturgical year filtered through the lens of an Oxford Don. But in the end, the liturgy seems to fade away in the story. Towards the end of the story, there are, there are fewer and fewer references to liturgical time until right at the end when we're told that as Lord of Tame, Farmer Giles still paid a nominal tribute to the king, six oxtails and a pint of bitter, delivered on St Matthias's day. And this reference to the hidden apostle, chosen to replace Judas, signals the end of the liturgical references in the story. And Farmer Giles, now old and venerable, ends the story and the story enters into the timelessness of myth and the liturgical year becomes absorbed within the story. And thinking about the liturgy as being absorbed within Tolkien's stories is, is I think, really important. There's a, there's a really famous letter from Tolkien to Father Robert Murray, uh, in which he wrote this. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. That is why I've not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like religion to cults or practices in the imaginary world for the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism now how exactly it was absorbed into the story and the symbolism tolkien didn't say but he does give a, a clue or a hint in a much less well-known essay on another of his short stories smith of wooten major and in that essay he said as in my stories generally, it will be observed that there is no religion. There is no church or temple. Among the professions, there is no parson or priest. The festivals are the nearest approach. And then he talks a little bit about the festivals in the story. And at the end of his paragraph, he says, in a story written by a religious man, this is a plain indication that religion is not absent, but subsumed. The tale is not about religion, or in particular about its relation to other things, it does not therefore appear as such, and he underlines as such. So I think there's there two important points here. One is the idea that the festivals are the nearest approach to all this. There's a kind of reminder that liturgical time matters. And the second thing that's important is this idea that religion isn't absent, it's just, it's just subsumed or absorbed within the story. So how is it absorbed? Well, in Smith of Wood and Major itself, there is this great hall, which Tolkien himself describes as a, an allegory of the village church. And the master cook is allegorically a representative of the priesthood. And he wrote a few versions of this story. And in one of the earliest ones, he makes a really clear link between the liturgy, the church, religion, and what's going on in the story. So he says the cookhouse was part of the village hall, the largest and oldest building in the place, and the only one that was really beautiful. In it, once a week, the villagers had a meal together, and most of them came regularly, except the very old or the very young, or any that might be ill. Also, there were various festivals during the year, for which the cook had to prepare special feasts. So in other words, in this early version of the story, 
The village hall clearly represented the Catholic Church, where the villagers met weekly for mass and also on other feast days throughout the year. So the story's got this clear liturgical setting. And we might also want to pick up on the, the idea of the Eucharist, the mass as a meal, which is clearly an important idea. And I think it was a really important idea for Tolkien himself. But perhaps that's something we might want to come back to a little bit later um, after a musical break. That's lovely. Thank you. I have found uh, in Manus to us, uh, which is a Gregorian chant, and I thought given we heard about um, the Gregorian chant with the elves, let's have a listen to this. over to you Roy. Thank you very much. So what I've suggested so far is that here's Tolkien, man of great faith, a man for whom the mass has been important since his early childhood and that works its way into his fiction but in some fairly unusual ways at times. But this idea that actually the liturgical year matters is, is fairly clear I think from Smith of Wootton Major and Farmer Giles of Ham. But both those books, both those stories are grounded in the season of Christmas. And they're both also set in the sixth age of the world, which according to the Venerable Bede, who I think was really important to Tolkien, that sixth age began with the incarnation of Christ. But if we move on to the Lord of the Rings, that's got quite a different setting. It takes place during the Third Age, which according to Bede lasted from Abraham to David. So we're in a different, we're in a different zone. It's clearly a very different type of book. And the book may begin, much like Farmer Giles of Ham, around Michaelmas for Bilbo's birthday, September the 22nd, falls on the date of the autumnal equinox, but it leads up to Christmas. The company leave Rivendell on the 25th of December and then on to the Annunciation, or the date of the Annunciation, on the 25th of March, which is when the ring is destroyed and Sauron is defeated. So we might want to think about why Tolkien has that structure to the Lord of the Rings. 
And what's interesting is that it's really easy to miss. So the significance of 25th of March in, in, in particular is not apparent at first, either to the hobbits or to readers of the book. So as Frodo, Sam and Gollum are approaching the cracks of doom, the narrator holds back from revealing the exact date or even the phases of the moon. So Tolkien's really precise with his description of the phases of the moon. So we can work out exactly when we are, but not in Mordor. It is, in the black, it is the blackness of the night in Mordor, the land of shadow, that is emphasized again and again, until even Sam eventually began to wonder if a second darkness had begun and no day would ever reappear. It's only after the ring is destroyed and the eagles have rescued Sam and Frodo that this temporal confusion into which the hobbits have fallen is resolved. Bless me, Sam says, really significant choice of words. Bless me, he says, when eventually he awakes. How long have I been asleep? And though he doesn't receive an answer straight away, Gandalf finally tells him that it is the 14th of the new year, or if you like, the eighth day of April in the Shire Reckoning. But in Gondor, the new year will always now begin upon the 25th of March, when Sauron fell and when you were brought out of the fire to the king. So Gandalf gives this date its full theological weight, revealing that the Gondorian new year will now begin on 25th of March, not simply because that was the date of Sauron's fall, but also because it was the date of Sam and Frodo's salvation through fire and safe return to the king. Now, Tolkien really resisted any straightforward allegorical readings of the Lord of the Rings. Neither Frodo nor Aragorn represents Christ in any straightforward sense, but there's clearly a mythical echo, or to be more precise, a foreshadowing of the salvific work of Christ here especially as expressed in 1 Corinthians 3. If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, St. Paul writes. So we, we know that the 25th of March is the date of the Annunciation. But during the Anglo-Saxon era, it was also believed to be the date of the crucifixion, the date of the eighth day of creation, the date of the crossing of the Red Sea, and the date of the sacrifice of Isaac. So what do all these dates have in common? Well, one critic, Eleanor Parker, who's a lecturer um, at Oxford, she's pointed out that these days were all linked with or prefigured the story of the world's fallen redemption. 25th of March occurs at a conjunction of solar, lunar, and natural cycles. All these events were understood to have happened in the spring, when life returns to the earth and at the vernal equinox, once the days begin to grow longer than the nights and light triumphs over the power of darkness. In other words, she says, 25th of March was the single most important date in history. So it's not accidental on Tolkien's part. It's not a coincidence that this is when the ring is destroyed, that Sauron is overthrown. And it's not even the last time we hear of it in the Lord of the Rings. So, for example, in the final chapter of the book, we hear this apparently innocuous sentence. 
the first of Sam and Rose's children was born on the 25th of March, a date that Sam noted. I just love that last part of the sentence. You know, of course, the father notes the date of his daughter's birth. But of course, the date has a much deeper significance for Sam. And, and this is even clearer in the original ending to The Lord of the Rings, in which Sam is reading to his family from the Red Book on Eleanor's birthday on the 25th of March. And I think Eleanor, his daughter, is a really kind of interesting character, much more important than is often realised, I think. Tolkien himself makes this clear in Appendix B of The Lord of the Rings. Eleanor, in some sense, completes the hobbits through her elvishness. She's, her name is drawn from uh, a plant, a flower in Lothlorien. And she becomes the means by which the story that ultimately comes down to us as the Lord of the Rings is preserved. For on September the 22nd, Master Samwise rides out from Bag End, Tolkien writes. He comes to the Tower Hills and is last seen by Eleanor, to whom he gives the Red Book. So when the three ring bearers who between them wrote or compiled the Red Book of Westmarch have left Middle-earth, it is Eleanor, whose birthday is a continuing echo of the destruction of the ring and a prefiguration of the Annunciation of Our Lady, who ensures that the story continues. But even that's not the end of the story. I've also I've briefly mentioned this mysterious episode that happens immediately after the destruction of the ring, an episode which has baffled many critics, including even Christopher Tolkien himself. After their rescue, Frodo and Sam sleep for 14 days. Why? Why such a long sleep? Why 14 days? The answer, I think, is again liturgical. They wake from their sleep. They have a great feast in their honour. And after feasting at the field of Cormallon, the hobbits see the round moon riding slowly above the mists of Anduin. We haven't heard about the moon for a long time. Suddenly Tolkien mentions it again. Why is it important? Because now, in our Christian era, it is the first full moon after the spring equinox that determines the date of Easter. Sam and Frodo woke on the 8th of April. The full moon was on the 7th of April. They are, if you like, in what would later become Eastertide. But, but why are they sleeping? Well, what happened immediately before Easter? On Holy Saturday, Christ harrowed hell. This was a really popular story before the Reformation. He harrowed hell, releasing Adam, Eve and the faithful dead from their captivity. It was the day on which those who were born before Christ were brought up from the underworld. And there's some really lovely descriptions of Holy Saturday. So here's one from a fourth century homily. Something strange is happening. There is a great silence on earth today, a great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. Now, that's beautiful in its own right, but it also sounds very much like what's happening in the Lord of the Rings. Now, I'll just pick out one or two moments from that part of, of the book. When Sauron is defeated, what happens? 
an enormous shape of shadow reared above the world and stretched out towards them a vast threatening hand, terrible but impotent, that even as it leant over them, great wind took it, and it was all blown away and passed, and then a hush fell. This hush, really surprisingly homely word in the context, is a prelude to the silence of sleep which falls on Sam and, P and Frodo, silence which prefigures the purgative silence of Holy Saturday. And this was a really important idea for Tolkien, both as an academic and as a writer of fiction. So he wrote a, a commentary on Beowulf. He taught Beowulf for years. He wrote a really important essay on Beowulf. And Beowulf's a really interesting English poem, old English poem, because it was a work of fiction by a Christian about a pre-Christian world. This really resonated with Tolkien. And in his commentary, he argued that the Beowulf poet believed that the redemption of Christ might work backwards. In the harrowing of hell, why should not, say, Hrothgar be among the rescued too? Okay, we don't need to go into who Hrothgar is too much at the moment. But we might add, yeah, why not Frodo and Sam too? The, the Beowulf poet tempted to equate the noble figures of his own northern antiquity with the noble figures, sages, judges and kings of Israel before Christ, Tolkien wrote. And just like the Beowulf poet, Tolkien wants to give his northern kings a place in an unwritten chapter, as it were, of the Old Testament, as he puts it in his commentary. So in this prefiguring of the sacred triduum, it's not surprising then that Tolkien should give apparently undue prominence to the events of Holy Saturday. For a Christian writing about a pre-Christian world, and for a scholar who's best known for his work on Beowulf, the ultimate fate of his characters was a matter of great importance. So Frodo and Sam are saved out of the fire, and when they awake, the company is reunited, the feast is celebrated, and the light of Easter, we might say, now shines upon them. Frodo and Sam's long sleep has prepared them for the proto-Paschal festival and enabled them to enjoy the full fruits of their victory. Perhaps one last comment, another way of putting it, is that the silence of Good Friday points to the silence of Holy Saturday, whose freeing of the dead points to the resurrection of Easter Sunday, which itself prepares us for and points us towards the second coming of Christ and the end of all things. And those words, the end of all things, are what Frodo says just before he and Sam collapse after the destruction of the ring. Quite a lot there, so maybe it's time for another musical break. And then afterwards, I can talk about a few more things. And if anybody's got any questions and wants to ring in and ask, I'll do my best to answer any of those as well. Thank you so much. Roy, we've got um, our phone lines open. So, dear listener, as always, the number is 01223 Um While we have Roy with us and we can, we can draw on his expertise, please feel free to call with any question you have. Maybe you've read Tolkien. Maybe you have watched the films. 
Um, maybe you've done both. Maybe you're expert and love him dearly. Or maybe you're not so familiar with him and you have questions to ask as a result of what you've heard um, on the liturgy, on Tolkien and his relationship with the Catholic Church and how he has brought that into his his work as an author. So any question is most welcome, whether it is highly clever or um, any that I'll come up with this evening won't be that clever because I'm no, I'm no expert on Tolkien, but I'm certainly looking forward to hearing more from Roy and from you as well, dear listener. Credo on Radio Maria and we have Roy Peachy with us this evening and Roy I have a question I'm always quite I love to have callers come in and I do hope dear listener that you will call um, in our next little music break but in the meantime I've got quite a few questions and I was just thinking which one should I ask you Roy and I think um, something that struck me right early on when you were speaking was that uh, Tolkien learnt the canon of the mass which I was really surprised by and it struck me that the people that would know that canon um, off by heart are actually priests and then I was thinking when you said that there they don't there isn't a organized religion in his books and um, there, there aren't necessarily priest figures and I wondered about the priesthood of the people and whether that's some of what he's conveying in his work the priesthood of the laity rather than ministerial priesthood. Yeah. Yes. I think it's interesting. I think Tolkien had this sort of ambivalent attitude towards allegory. He he really hated reductive readings of his work. He hated it when people gave sort of simplistic, you know, Frodo equals Christ or Aragorn equals Christ or Gandalf equals you know the priesthood or something like that. He saw it as being much more complex than that. So I think he would have probably said, no, absolutely, no, not priest, not priesthood of the laity, priesthood of all believers, because he would have said, I think, that, look, I'm writing about a pre-Christian world. Um, none of these things really apply. And in, in a sense, it's a pagan world, but it's actually a, a sort of cleaned up pagan world. So there seems to be a, a memory, albeit a kind of dim memory, of the creator and although there's no cult there's no ceremony you get occasional 
remind us there's this standing silence for example a sort of almost like a form of grace um which you get from uh faramir and and others in the book so i think that on the one hand you've got that he's writing about a world which hasn't heard about christ and therefore all the kind of usual theological categories don't really apply but on the other hand he's seeing everything everything absolutely every part of history being gathered up in the christian story ultimately so all sorts of things point towards it and uh, in that sense you suddenly get all of these you know liturgical ideas theological ideas running through all of his fiction but perhaps the lord of the rings more than than any of the others that's a roundabout way of not answering your question. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's not. I think. Do you think he felt? Do you think he had some freedom that he that he lived by going into a pre-Christian world? Or, yeah, why did he choose that? Given how religious he was, clearly. Yes, I think it's really interesting. I think part of it is that he he didn't want to compete with the Christian story. So if you look at the Silmarillion, there is a there is a creation story in that, but he doesn't write directly about the creation of, of people, of mankind, um, because that story's already been authoritatively told, and he does want to tread on that. So he writes about the creation of the elves, he talks about the, the dwarves and, and, and so on. So that he leaves this kind of gap. He does talk about the appearance of men but he doesn't retell the 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 genesis story so i think he's very aware of the fact as a christian and a catholic that actually there is sacred scripture and you know he shouldn't be competing with that um but also i suppose just in his academic life you know he was a he was the expert on old english he was the the expert on the early english literature and in a similar way, you've got these people who they recently converted to Christianity um, and their stories were often stories of their ancestors from the pre-Christian past. So you've got this kind of really interesting dynamic between Christians telling the story of their, their pagan ancestors, both in England, but also in, in Scandinavia. So the, the Norse myths that we know I mean, pretty much all the old Norse myths we know were told by Snorri Sturluson, who was Christian. But he's reflecting on that that pagan past and retelling it through a, a Christian a, a Christian lens. I do love that um, Eastern icon of Jesus taking Adam and Eve out of the grave, and um, yeah, the astounding act of the crucifixion being for all time and all creation um yeah isn't it that's what you're making me think about that and the uh the um it's terrible because i start to think of words like how enormous that is how amazing that is and i, I lose i lose language um but actually he conveys some of that that astounds us doesn't he through these books as well and and that pre-christian world and jesus somehow being present there before time and in that time as well. Um, I, right. I hope I'm not getting um, theologically dodgy there um, because I'm not a theologian, so that's very much a layperson's understanding. Um, I'm going to make sure that we have time for you to, to do your last little bit for us, Roy, but we've just got a few minutes. If 
You are listening to Credo and we have Roy Peachy with us this evening. Roy, I know you have some more that you would like to speak to us about. We're looking forward to hearing more from you. Thank you very much. Well, I mentioned earlier about the importance of meals in Tolkien's work. And we can think about the Lord of the Rings. There is an awful lot of feasting going on in the Lord of the Rings, starting with Bilbo's uh, party right at the start of the book through to the celebration after the defeat of Sauron towards the end. And what's really striking is that there's very little reference to particular types of food, very few references indeed. And lots of critics have pointed out that the food that is mentioned tends to be very plain. It's the stuff that hobbits generally enjoy eating. It's mushrooms, it's bread, it's cheese, it's that sort of thing. It's beer. But two foodstuffs, or one type of food and one type of drink, do keep popping up throughout the book. One of them is bread. So, for example, when Frodo and Sam and Pippin and Merry meet Gildor, meet the elves for the first time, he gives them this, this glorious meal, which is never to be forgotten, including bread surpassing the savour of a fair white loaf to one who is dying. And what else is mentioned time and time again? It's wine. So here we're seeing some sort of memory or precursor of the mass, I think. So again, right at the end of the book, we hear about the very wine of blessedness. So I don't think these references are, are coincidental at all. And then, of course, there's lembas, this whey bread given to the company by Galadriel in Lothlorien. And what is this stuff? Well, Tolkien himself said in, in one of his pieces of writing collected in his letters, it has a much larger significance of what one might hesitatingly call a religious kind. Now, Tolkien was really resistant writing about precisely the, the meaning of any particular part of his stories. So for him to say, even hesitatingly, that there's a religious interpretation here is, in, is important. He says in another letter, another reader saw in Waybread, Lembas, the viaticum, and the reference to its feeding the will and being more potent when fasting, a derivation from the Eucharist. And then he adds, that is, far greater things may colour the mind in dealing with the lesser things of a fairy story. So Lembas has its place within the story. It's the means by which Sam and Frodo can keep going across Mordor when there is no other food. But it also is a reminder of the far greater feast of the Eucharist. So there's this lovely sentence in, uh, in Mordor, when they're talking about Lembas, and we're told that it fed the will and it gave strength to endure and to master sinew and limb beyond the measure of mortal kind. So surely here with Lembas, there's this, this echo or this prefiguring of the Blessed Sacrament, which we know is so important to Tolkien. Now, if that's all true, why is it that most people have forgotten that? Well, I don't think Tolkien would have been that surprised. In one of the appendices to The Lord of the Rings, he points out that, and I quote, 
there is no record of the Shire folk commemorating either March the 25th or September the 22nd. In the Shire, the date of the defeat of Sauron and the date of the birth of Bilbo and Frodo are both forgotten. So there's this liturgical amnesia, if you like, in the Shire during the Fourth Age. And maybe that's what we're suffering from as well, this sort of liturgical amnesia. We forget about what was absolutely central to the early Christians, the early English Christians, whom Tolkien studied and wrote about as an academic. Now, we could go further, and, and in my PhD, I'm trying to go further, but it becomes uh, exceedingly complicated, so it's probably not what anybody's going to want to hear at 20 past nine on a Tuesday evening. But I think you can also suggest that there's a liturgical structuring and a liturgical rhythm to the Lord of the Rings that the repetitions that you get within the book are at least partially influenced by the repetitions of the Mass. So uh, Tom Shippey, one of Tolkien's greatest critics, has talked about chronological leapfrogging. You get one character experiencing the events, then you kind of go back in time, and the other set of characters sort of catch up. So what happens at the end of the book is that we hear about the defeat of Sauron in three separate chapters from three different perspectives. We hear it again and again and again. And this repetition, it reminds us of what Catherine Pickstock has called the liturgical stammer, this repetition you get throughout the Mass, something that, that um, the early Protestant reformers and later Catholic reformers, for that matter, really found troublesome, but which was absolutely central to the, the Roman Rite as Tolkien knew it and, and loved it. And then you've also got this idea that what is the Lord of the Rings? Well, it's a literary text. It's something that's been written down. Uh, the fiction is that it's been written by Bilbo and then Frodo and then lately uh, by Sam. But it also has this real feel of being an oral text. You know, there's lots of songs. There's lots of songs which get, um, there's a variation on those songs slightly on later on in the book. So it has a feel of being both literary and oral, which again is very much like the Mass itself. Now, the Mass itself is an oral thing. It's, a, it's a, a ceremony that needs to be heard. It needs to be enacted. But of course, it can be written down and read in a missal as well. So I think Tolkien plays around with some of these ideas, or maybe... It was so, the Mass was so deeply embedded within him. You know, he memorized the canon of the Mass. He was so used to this over so many years that it's perhaps no surprise that it should have influenced the structure and the rhythm of the Lord of the Rings. So I suppose my, my sort of final view of all of this is that you've got the story of the Lord of the Rings, which exists in its own right and the story of all his other great stories, which exist in their own rights. They make sense in their own rights. They exist as stories, but they take place within a very special time. And this time in The Lord of the Rings and other books always gestures towards liturgical time, which itself points towards the bliss of eternity. And that ultimately 
is what Tolkien was writing about. So the religion in the book, the liturgy in the book is not absent, it's absorbed. It's there, and yet we don't always see it directly. So I think it's wonderful stuff. It's There's always more to discover in Tolkien. There's always more to find. Um, the Lord of the Rings is one of those books, even though it's a thousand pages long, which really bears rereading. So that may be a good point for me to finish with. Thank you so much, Roy. Uh, you've really... You've given me a, a new perspective on the liturgy, um, strangely, that has come as you've, you know, as I was, I've been pondering as you've been speaking this last part as well. Um, but how God relates to us through time, through our bodies, through communities, through the world around us, you know, the galaxies, the earth, the tides, the seasons, um, what exists before us, what exists after us, and all in this eternal uh, reality um, that somehow the lit lit liturgy begins to connect us with. Um, yeah, so I'm going to, I have to confess, I haven't read Tolkien. I've always watched the films and I've loved the films. Every Christmas we watch Lord of the Rings. Um, but it, I'll see it, I'll see it a little bit differently now. It's great. Thank you. Oh, no, pleasure. And the films are fun. The films are fun, but the book is better. Is, well, yeah, well, the better. books usually are, aren't they? Is he, is he a hard read? I, I don't think he is. I mean, I think he's, you know, it is a long book. The Lord of the Rings is a long book. Uh -huh. But I think he had that wonderful touch where he was able to, he was just a great storyteller. Yeah. So I think um, if you can set aside a bit of time, I think it's it's not a hard read. I think it's a... Um, it's a story that is engaging, that can really hold you, um, you know, over a thousand pages. And yet, you know, we can see is, uh, how many how many authors could write books of that length? How many authors are, is there still a demand after their death for everything, every scrap of writing that he wrote? Uh -huh. uh, he is a phenomenon. He is, he was the, the author of the century. As Tom Shippey pointed out in, in one of his books, that was the title of his book about Tolkien. Poll after poll, people still vote for him as the author of the century. Right. And some literary critics get a bit sniffy about that. But actually, I think they're the ones who are missing out. I think, I think Tolkien was a phenomenal academic. He was a phenomenal writer. And there's, there's always more to be discovered in his work. I think that, yeah, you've inspired us to pick up which book would you recommend if you want something short uh, i really like leaf by niggle mm -hmm. leaf by niggle which in effect is an allegory of purgatory although he said he didn't like allegory i i think one way of reading leaf by niggle is as an allegory um, and it's also just a great story in itself so leaf by niggle is a short story and then if you're feeling bold, The Lord of the Rings, well, start with The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. That's great. And allegory is when something is made to be like something else. Is that right? Yeah, Just remind that's me right. my English, my proper English. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you take Animal Farm, for example, 
is both a story about animals on a farm, but it's also a story about the Russian Revolution and Stalin. Yes. In the same way, Leaf by Niggle is partly a story about a man called Niggle and his neighbour and their relationship, but it's also a story about life, death and purgatory. Roy, thank you so much for this evening. If I can just say thank you to you for coming this evening um, and for offering your time, Roy. It's been a very um, deep and thought-provoking evening you've given us and inspiring as well. Well, thank you ever so much for having me. It's always good to be on Radio Maria. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. And you.